Hey everyone, my name's Hank, Digital Pastor here at the Foundry Church. We just want to say thank you for tuning in to our sermon series podcast. We're an awesome series now where we are exploring gospel wisdom in a new series that we're calling Uncommon. We really hope that this time blesses you and that you have an awesome time listening in and checking in with us here in Central Florida. If you're looking for a church family or if you're a part of our church family already, we would love to connect with you more online. You can head to our website, www.thefoundry.org. That's www.thefoundry.org. Or you can find us on social media, specifically our Facebook page and our Facebook group are great ways to get connected with us. So we're going to hand it off now to Seth as we jump in to today's message in our series, Uncommon. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Good morning. I'm glad you're here. My name is Seth. Whether you're joining us in person or online, welcome to the Foundry, where we're all about a better you and a better world. We, oh, real quick, all the stuff Hunter was talking about is going to be really cool. Uh, We're trying to do stuff like family-specific that will carry through this next whole month of Advent. It's going to be cool. Check it out, and it will kind of tie into the series we're doing as well. It's going to be awesome. Make sure you check it out. Uh, We are in week number five of our series called Uncommon. We're wrapping up today. Uncommon is this introduction to gospel wisdom. Uh, Gospel wisdom is this like alternative wisdom that runs counter to, runs against the grain of traditional or conventional wisdom. And so we've been looking at all these teachings of Jesus and going through them and like uncovering a new way to think about a whole lot of stuff. So last week we talked about the sign of Jonah and about how the invitation is for us to align ourselves with the greater, with with the larger pattern of death and resurrection that's all around us. This week we move on in our introduction to gospel wisdom. We're gonna be looking at three parables that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. You may be familiar with these a little bit, but we're going to look at them and then kind of, kind of tie them together and see if there's anything that by putting them together, like we can actually discover new and fresh and maybe that will enlighten us, open our eyes to this alternative wisdom sort of stuff. Okay, so let's start with Luke chapter 15, verse 1, because what I want to do is look at how the whole thing starts. Before Jesus tells the parable, what is happening? What is the setup that leads into the parables? Okay, here you go. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This is the setup to the whole thing. So tax collectors and sinners, they're, they're gathering around Jesus. They want to hear what he has to say. And then the religious people, they're showing up around Jesus as well, but they're uh, like there for a different reason. They're a bit annoyed. Why are these people gathering around him? They're frustrated with who Jesus is. And, and they mutter, this man welcomes sinners. Not only does he welcome, he eats with them, which might not seem like a big deal to us, but the reason this gets written down is because it's kind of a big deal. It was a huge deal that Jesus was spending time with these types of people. It was a huge deal that he was sharing a meal with them. Here's what you have to understand is that like this whole conflict, this whole tension is tied to their history. It's tied to who they are as a people. It's tied to their culture. It has deep roots within their society. So the people of Israel, right, they believe themselves to be the people of God. God has given them all these promises to be their own people, to have their own land, all this stuff. And yet they've gone through generation after generation where these promises haven't really been fully fulfilled. 
They keep getting conquered by empire after empire after empire. They believe that they are worshiping the one true God, the one who is the creator of the universe, who has put everything in order, and that they are his people, and that God has promised these things. And yet, over the course of time, it's just captivity after captivity, like something's off. Something's not working the way it's supposed to. If, if, if this is the way God says it's work and it hasn't worked out that way, then there's some sort of issue. And all these empires that keep conquering us, they don't really seem to care about our one true God. So over the course of time, what happens is this religious establishment comes to power and they gain this following and they acquire a good bit of power and, and they begin to develop and teach these ideas that the reason they keep getting conquered and the reason the promises have not been fully fulfilled is because some of the fellow countrymen, some of their fellow Israelites, are failing to keep God's command. They're breaking God's command. That's, that's the reason we keep getting conquered. That's the reason we're not our own people. That's the reason why the Romans are in charge like over us. And they give the people that are breaking the rules, who are the problem, they give them a name. They call them sinners. So it's the sinner's fault that all these hardships keep coming up against their country. So the religious establishment, they developed all these systems, these rules, these rituals to determine who was the problem and who wasn't, who was contributing to why God's promises haven't been fulfilled and who's like, like taking away from that. They, they made up terms that you may have heard of, like clean and unclean. So if you observed all the, all the rituals, all the rules the way you were supposed to, you were deemed clean and you were not a problem, part of the problem. But if you did not or could not participate in the rituals, you were deemed unclean. And if you were deemed unclean, then you were the problem. And so this whole idea, this, this, this clean and unclean, was less about the condition of the heart or a spiritual matter and more about a political label and the following of the system. So to call somebody a sinner was more a political statement than it was anything else. One of the other problems with this whole setup was that uh, one of the, some of the laws that they created had to do with like ritual bathing and purity, purity laws. And so you would have to come to the temple, you'd have to get in this little pool, you'd go through the, the ritual, the, the rite, whatever, you'd be deemed clean, therefore you are on the side of the good. But the issue is it took time and money to go to the temple, to afford to be able to do this sort of thing. So if you were like a farmer or a shepherd or like the working class, this was a bit difficult. If, if you lived in an agrarian society where you're out in the field, you're working all day, every day, getting your hands dirty just to survive, you don't have the extra time and money to participate. And so since you can't do this, you're now labeled as a sinner and you're deemed to be a part of the problem and you're the reason the bad things keep happening to all of us. This is also where like the social hierarchy of, of the day comes into play. We keep talking about this. There's a strict social hierarchy and you have the Romans at the top, everyone underneath them based on how much you make, how much you have, how much status, how much power, all this stuff. Um, they interact with each other. They don't interact with the people beneath them, even within the Jewish society. The people at the top do not interact with the people underneath them. One, because why would you? Like, they're beneath you. And then two, because they're probably unclean, which means they're sinners, which again means they're part of the problem. So people would stay within their class, within their rank. You hang out with like-minded or like-status uh, type of people. The one thing you don't do is hang out with people beneath you. The other thing you don't do is eat with the people beneath you. 
To eat with somebody was, was a big deal at this time. To share a table with somebody, to share a meal with somebody was a big deal because you're essentially validating the other person. So we, in this group, we can eat with each other because we're okay with each other, but we can't eat with them up here with the religious people because for them to eat with us would be for them to say that we're okay, but we haven't done the rituals, we haven't done the, 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 the purity cleansing, so we're not clean, so we're sinners, so we're part of the problem, so they can't say that we're okay, so they can't share a meal with us. But what do we see Jesus doing? Always. He's always eating. <laughs> He's always eating. He's always eating with somebody. He's eating with people from all different like, parts of the social hierarchy. He eats so much, in fact, that he gets accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. Like, how much do you have to eat before people just start saying this to you about you, right? Like, how much? How, uh, that guy is always eating. He's just like parked at the buffet. So he's eating with everyone. He's eating with everyone, but he's not just having a meal because he's a rabbi. He's a religious leader. He's a religious leader who's eating with the sinners, with the unclean. This alone is a, is a huge statement. It's a bold statement because he's saying essentially that they're okay in his book. He's eating with the people that are technically beneath his station and his status in society. Everyone in the religious, that the religious establishment has deemed like unclean or unworthy, Jesus is saying, pull up a seat, which would really make the religious people really, really mad. So this passage starts with, Sinners and tax collectors gathering around Jesus to hear what he has to say. Then the religious people, they're gathering around too, but they're like looking at this, this whole situation with a bit of disgust, and they're saying, he welcomes sinners and eats with them. He's, he's saying that the people are okay, the people that we believe to be the problem for why we have all the issues that our countries have. That's the setup for the parable. That's the context, that's the framework through which you have to view these next three things, okay? So, let's get into the first parable. So, in response to the grumbling religious leaders and to the crowds that are around him, Jesus says this. Then he told him this parable. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Okay, now pause there because this is a great line that we might just kind of breeze right through, right? And, and I promise the whole message won't be this nitpicky, but just a few things to point out to keep us moving in the right direction. So this phrase we might normally read over, uh, suppose one of you has 100 sheep and, and, and loses one of them, right? This right here is, is a bold choice of an opening statement. This right here, to the religious guys, might even be a bit offensive, because the religious guys, they, they would never participate in something like this. Because of the whole ranking uh, and hierarchy sort of thing, not only uh, who you eat with is, is an issue sort of thing, but like your profession. Not only are these cleansing rules and rituals that you have to participate, your, your, your profession was deemed as clean and unclean. So if you're the Amha'aretz, which is the people of the, of the, of the land, you're the, the workers, you're the ones that are getting your hands dirty, you are, you are deemed unclean. That whole profession was. A religious leader was, was clean. They were respectable. That was okay. The, the Amha Aretz, the people of the land, they were the sinners. They were the ones who couldn't have the time and the ability to go and do the thing that they needed to do to be made clean, right? So a shepherd is the Amha Aretz. So when Jesus says to the religious leaders who are up here, suppose one of you has a sheep, has a hundred sheep. Suppose one of you is a shepherd, Right, like this is, this is a bit of an offensive statement. This would, be like, this would be like saying to a bunch of preachers, suppose one of you owns a gentleman's club and one of the girls twists her ankle. Right, like that's, that's the offensive sort of thing. This would be like uh, saying to an Alabama fan, suppose 
you were an Auburn fan. Like, no, we can't do that. That's beneath us, right? It's beneath us. We, we, would, never, we would never do that. Uh, so this is a big opening line. Jesus directly confronts their core identity. Suppose you, you uppity religious elite people, suppose you had 100 sheep. Suppose you were the Amharets, the sinners, the one that you have labeled outcast. Okay, verse seven, uh, verse uh, four, continue. Okay, so suppose one of you has 100 sheep, loses one of them, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. So he goes, he finds the thing, and there's this initial celebration, this response of joy, because he's found the thing that was lost. He puts it on his shoulder. There's, a, there's excitement, there's a celebratory moment, and then he begins to make the journey home. The lost sheep has to be carried home, which means there's a moment of celebration and then there's the work of restoration, that the shepherd is returning the sheep to where it belonged. Okay, verse, keep going, verse six. Then he calls, uh, he goes home, then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. So there's not just one moment of celebration, there's two. There's the initial one where he just finds the sheep itself and he celebrates, and then when he gets home, after he does the work of restoration, there's this whole other party, like we're gonna celebrate that this lost sheep has been brought home. It's been returned to whom it belongs. Verse seven, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Okay, now remember, the term we talked about sinner carries with it this political idea. It's a term that's used to classify those who the religious people saw as being the reason for all their problems, to why the nation kept getting conquered. Also, we see here, we see this term repent. Repent in the Hebrew text is the word teshuva. Teshuva means to uh, return, like return, you've off the path, you come back to the path, you return to the path. It also means to come home. Uh, in the Greek text, the word uh, repent is the word meta, metanoeo, uh, which means to change your thinking, change the way you think about stuff. So Jesus says, come home, repent, change your way of thinking, and when you do these things, there's going to be a lot of celebration surrounding that. We'll talk more about it later. Parable number two. Moving quickly. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you that there is, going to be re there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So what do we see here again? We see lostness, we see searching, we see uh, rejoicing, we see sinner, we see repentance. Okay, parable number three, starting in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Uh, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now what you have to realize about this is that this is actually a really shocking statement as well. <laughs> like all this stuff that we might kind of just read over is actually, there's a lot happening like between the lines here. This would have been a shocking statement. This would have been a situation that would have, was unheard of at the time. They're living in this patriarchal society where everything is about the men. I'm sure you can't understand what that's like, but everything, everything ran, runs through the men, and so like the lineage, is, is, it's all about the men. The, when the father dies, the inheritance, it's all passed down through the, through the generations of the sons. So an inheritance would only be passed down or distributed when the father of a family dies. So when the younger son comes and says to his father, like, give me that inheritance now, in this place, in this time, this is essentially him saying to his father, like, 
I wish you were dead. That, that's, the, that's the kind of weight this statement actually carries when you understand what's happening. Like, I wish you were dead. And, it, and he's saying this in a place where, in a society where respect for, for the elderly is, for your elders, is priority. So, so to say something like this is a, this is a major, this is a major deal. It's almost offensive. This, this is an offensive beginning to the story. And what's crazy about it is not only does the story start this way, but the father doesn't like beat or punish the child for asking this, for telling his dad that he wishes he was dead. The father actually grants the request, which is kind of an odd thing. The father grants the request. So keep in mind that this like offense that the son commits against the father uh, it's not just that he asks the question, that's offensive, but it's also that the father goes through with it. Th- this actually would have like, become offensive to the older brother as well because it's kind of like, it's like an early withdrawal. Okay, so here's the way the, the, thought, the thinking goes is if typically you're waiting till the father dies to distribute the inheritance, well, now the son comes to the father while he's still alive and says, I wish you were dead. So the father grants the request, so he splits everything he has. He's splitting up everything he has in that moment. So by taking everything in that moment, the thought is you're missing out on the father growing his wealth, acquiring more property, acquiring more land, whatever. So by taking it out early, not only does the younger brother get less, but the older brother gets less as well. So if you're the older brother, you're going to be a bit upset at the younger brother for asking the question, and you're going to be upset with your father for actually saying yes to the request. So now he's in a bit of a, a tough spot, like, because it, it kind of stinks for him, right? Like, he's kind of getting a bit of a raw deal here. So the story goes, the story continues. If you're familiar with the prodigal son, the younger brother, he squanders his wealth on wild living. Eventually, he hits rock bottom. He makes the decision, I should go home, beg for a job with my dad. Maybe I can be a servant. I know the servants there get treated better than I'm living right now. You see in verse 20, this incredible reunion. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a young way off, a uh, long way off, his father Solomon was filled with compassion for him. Uh, this is a big deal, by the way, uh, because in, this, in these societies, the father, uh, an older man, would never run. Uh, the fact that he's running speaks to the, the character of the father because this, wouldn't have been, this is undignified, this is unclassy, right, for the father to do this, but he does it. Uh, he runs to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This is like a big movie moment in my mind, right? It's cinematic, like the son is in his lowest point and then he decides to come home and the father is out working in the yard or whatever and then the son appears, there's a shadow on the horizon and his dad's like, who's that? And he comes and then all of a sudden he sees him, he starts running and then it's slow motion and they're running towards each other and the music builds and this great crescendo and then they embrace and they're swinging and they're smiling and they're crying and it's like, this, right? It's a beautiful moment. We love this story, we love the prodigal son, it's a great story. So the son returns, dad throws this big party, a celebration of his lost son. Um, He gives him the ring, he gives him the robe, he says, welcome home, you're a part of this family. This causes problem with the other brother, the older brother though, right? The older brother, who because the younger brother took the inheritance early, got less inheritance than he should have, and who at the same time has been loyal to his father the whole time that his brother was off doing whatever he was doing, now he's feeling a bit overlooked. So watch what happens, verse 28. Uh, they're having this big party. The older brother became angry and refused to go into the party. Uh, it, yeah. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. 
Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, which is really funny, he doesn't label him as his brother. He doesn't, it's not when my brother came home, it's when your son, right? Parents, you do this when your kids get something, do something dumb, you're like, hey, your daughter did this. Anyways, uh, but when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. This was also a big deal. That, that was reserved for like a special occasion. You kill the fattened calf for him. So, so he's a bit upset. Uh, verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, you know what's interesting about this story especially if you're familiar with it, but is that if you think about it, both sons are actually kind of in the same spot. They both, in some ways, separate themselves from the love of the father. Both sons, like one is separated because of his bad deeds in his mind. The other one is separated because of his good deeds in his mind, he doesn't go into the party. The one goes out and squanders the wealth and make bad choices, all the things that people point to and go, oh, see, look what's wrong with him, look at all the bad choices he's made. Yeah, he doesn't deserve that, he, yeah, he really screwed things up. The other one, who stuck around, says, I've been working here for years, I've always done what you've asked, I've never disobeyed, he seems to think that his goodness is earning him something. So both of the sons are living with this assumption that their father is operating according to the rules of the game, to the rules of the game of life. He's keeping score. He's keeping score. He, he's ranking, he's, he's judging. He's, both sons are living with the assumption that the love of the father is determined by their actions. The one son did bad, well dad's not going to love me as much. Maybe I can just be a servant rather than a son. The other son did good, well, dad should love me more. They're both living with the assumption that their behavior is somehow earning or taking away from them the father's love. But what does Jesus do in this story? What does Jesus do with the father character, the God character in the middle of the story? The father welcomes home the lost son. He says, here's a robe, here's a ring. Welcome home, you've always been my son. Then the older brother gets upset and he refused to go to the party that's celebrating the return of the son. The father goes to him and pleads with him. Please come into the party. Please come celebrate. Your, son, your brother has returned home. And when the brother says, well, you never gave me anything, the father says, yeah, but you were always with me. Everything I have is yours. Both sons seem to misunderstand how the father operates. They equally misunderstand their dad. And they both seem to think that they have to earn or do or prove. They both seem to think that the love of their father has something to do with what they did. But the father says to the lost son, you've always been my child, welcome home. The father says to the older brother who did the right things, you've always been my child and everything I have is yours, right? So you've got the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Why does Luke arrange these this way? What is, what is the thing that connects them? What are things that tie, what ties these things together? Well, in each one, you have this idea of 
rejoicing over something that was lost being found, something that was lost being rescued or restored, something that was lost coming home to the one to whom it belonged. So, like, the underlying thing of these three stories is that all three things that were lost, all three of them already belonged. Their identity, their foundational identity, the foundational state of their existence was belonging. The lost sheep belonged to the shepherd. The lost coin belonged to the woman. The lost son belonged to the father. And so the thing that keeps the stories moving, the catalyst of the story, isn't the thing that is lost. The thing that keeps the stories moving is the efforts of the one to which the lost thing belongs. It's the shepherd. It's the woman. It's the father. They are the ones rescuing, restoring, receiving, returning things to their proper place. That's what drives these stories. What did the sheep do? Nothing, really. What did the coin do? Nothing, really. What did the son do? Well, the son... He does something, like he makes an attempt, he makes this effort to return home, but it's not with this idea of coming home as a son, it's with the idea of coming home as a servant. He's just hoping that dad might not punish him or something. It's the thing, uh, the, the thing that keeps each story moving is that the owner of the thing that is lost keeps pursuing the thing that is lost. The thing that keeps the story moving is not the lost thing itself. The thing that is lost would just stay lost if it weren't for the one to which they already belonged. Do you see why this is incredible? Do you see why this is like amazing? Do you see why this is like alternative gospel wisdom? Because the mindset of the world is, and even many people's understanding of religion and faith is like, everything is kind of a, kind of a bit transactional, isn't it? It's like, it's kind of conditional. If I do this, then God will do this. If I do A, B, and C, then God will bless. If I follow the rules, then God will bless. It's like the rich young ruler who came to, came to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, go sell all your stuff. He says, I can't do that. And he walks away sad. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Right? He's looking for, tell me what to do so that I can do that, so we can make this transaction so that I can get the thing that you told me. Let me go do this so that I can have eternal life. Well, then the problem is like, if I do the right things, if I follow the rules, and then something's still off, Right? If God hasn't fulfilled his side of this transaction, then, then what's the, like, the typical response from people? Well, it's similar then as it is now. Like, well, there's something wrong with you. Right? You ever heard the phrase, well, there's sin in the camp. Something's going wrong, so it's, it's on you. Or, or if you've ever um, heard, heard people when you have an issue, well, you just need to pray more. You need to pray harder. You need to pray more fervently. You, you're not doing enough. We're, we're, the guilt is on you. Oh, you have to fix it. You have to do the thing. It's a, but what we see here in this story, or even the story of Job, if you think about it, what was the whole story of Job? All his friends were like, no, what did you do? Why did you do this? What have you done wrong? When you make the whole thing transactional, the guilt comes back on you. And then what we see in these stories with Jesus telling, he's like, all the things that were lost already belong. They didn't, they didn't really do anything Belonging was their foundational state of being. The son could not not belong to the father. The sheep could not not belong to the shepherd. The coin could not 
not belong to the woman. Think about the last thing the father says to the older brother. Of all the things Jesus could have put in the mouth of the God character, of the father, what does he have him say? Of all the things he could have said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. You are always with me and everything I have is yours. So what, what is your approach? What is your general understanding of life, faith, religion, spirituality? Is it one of tell me what to do so that I can go and do that so I can receive the blessing that I can receive the words that God will bless me? Is it one of, well, I have to keep checking the boxes to make sure that I'm earning the proper points? Is it one of conditions? Is it one of, I have to keep proving myself in order to have value? Or is it one of belonging? Because one of these ways is like really freeing, and then the other ones are kind of exhausting. Like you keep playing the game, that's exhausting. And here's the thing about this, at least to me, is like this all affects your life like directly. This affects the here and now, this affects your everyday because where you're at with this, your understanding of this, this is the place you live from. This is the place that your actions are birthed from, which means that if my foundational understanding is that I, if I have to earn and do and prove and accomplish, then everything I'm doing has like this base layer or, or is being birthed out of this need. It's being birthed out of some sort of fear or anxiety or stress or whatever or a lack of value. So I have to keep doing and proving and going. But if my foundational understanding is that I already belong, then I operate out of a place of security and confidence and love. And, and this makes the big difference as to how you will experience this life, right? The truth is, like, people can do the same things but do it in different ways and get different results, right? Like, for example, we, we could be doing the same thing but doing it with a different mindset or a different attitude or a different spirit, and we will have different experiences. So, uh, you know, like, if we take, like, the list of what good Christian people do on a regular basis, go to church, read your Bible, say your prayers, give to the church, all that stuff, right? And we go, uh, for example, let's say I come at it from the place of going, well, I go to church because like I have to or my family's dragging me or uh, I've been brought up in the church and if I skip a day, then I don't know what's gonna happen to my faith and you know, then it's a slippery slope and it becomes like this obligation. If I come to church or, or if, I, if I approach, my approach to reading the scripture is like, oh, I have to do this like, because if I don't, then I'm a bad Christian. Or if my approach to like saying prayers is, I, I, I have to say my prayers because I have to ask for forgiveness, and if I forget something that I did that was a sin, and then I die today, then I'm gonna go to hell because I forgot that one thing, and my friend asked if I liked his haircut, and I said yes, but I didn't, so that's a lie, and if I forget to put that out there, then... Now, you, on the other hand, you can come at those same things, going to church, reading your Bible, saying your prayers, from a bit of a different place, Right? If you come at it from the place of, well, I'm not going to church because like, I have to. I'm going to church because I get to, because I get to go fellowship with people. I get to go interact with community. I get to go see people that have similar belief that we worship this same God and we want to come together and like, glorify that God. Well, that's a different experience then, isn't it? Oh, I, I, don't, I don't read the Bible because I have to. I read the Bible because there's a lot of like, wisdom and insight. There's a lot of things that can actually speak to my life that can help me like, live a better kind of life, that can help me have a better experience. Like, 
well, then you're gonna have a different approach and experience with the scripture. Well, I say my prayers not because I have to, but because like, this is actually an opportunity for me to communicate with the divine. I get to have a conversation with the one who is over all and through all and in all. So we're doing the same things, but it's just coming from a different spirit. It's coming from a different place. So we're gonna have completely different experiences, aren't we? That's why part of this is incredible. Because we get to come from this place of insecurity, uncertainty, unknowing, whatever, and what the gospel wisdom is announcing to us is like, you already belong. You already belong. So when you're operating out of a place of belonging, out of a place of security, you're free to give yourself to things. You're free to give your energy and your time to all kinds of wonderful things and not be riddled with worry and fear and anxiety. You already belong. Now you're free to experience the fullness of life that Jesus came to offer. Right? He's continually inviting us to be free from all of the other stuff, all of the heaviness, all of the, all of the weight, all of the... This is the gospel announcement that you are alive, that this gift, that he has given you this gift of life. And, and the fundamental state of all things is that it belongs. The story that Jesus tells are insisting that the universe is not against you. It's not neutral to you. In fact, it's on your side. These stories insist that God has extended a massive amount of effort to rescue and restore and renew and redeem all that has been lost, all that has wandered. Right? He, he's done the work. He's already, you already belong. So when you find yourself like tired and hurting and disappointed or embarrassed or you got wounded in some way, like maybe you need to take a moment in the middle of that hurt and frustration and pain and listen for that gospel wisdom. Listen for that gospel announcement that says you already belong. You, you don't have to earn or prove. And even the things that were lost, I already did the thing. <laughs> like, I've taken care of that. Like, don't question your identity. What do you, everything I have is yours. You've been with me the whole time. Maybe this is what we need to like write down and take with us this week. Like maybe this becomes like the, the, the positive thought, the mantra, the whatever, the thing that, the memory verse for you. Everything I have is yours. You've, you've always been with me. Like so when that difficulty arises and you're struggling and you're struggling with identity and what I'm doing or whatever, or you're coming to some sort of frustration, like no, no, like take a break, take a breath, take a breath. Everything I have is yours. You were always with me. Everything I have is yours. You were always with me. Now, one more thing, and then we'll like, get into our time of communion, and we'll get out of here. Let's go back to the beginning and think about who Jesus is talking to. Okay, he's talking to the tax collectors and the sinners, the people who are gathering around to hear this gospel message. Who shows up? The religious, leader, the religious leaders. They show up, and they're looking at everybody, and they're like, ugh. He welcomes these people. He eats with these people. So when Jesus begins to tell these parables, these three in a row, who is he talking to? He's essentially talking to everybody in the social hierarchy, from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high. He's talking to everybody. And he tells these three stories about these things that were lost, 
these things that really did nothing to be found, yet who were recovered and, and restored, and their recovery and restoration was entirely dependent upon uh, because of the one they belonged to. Their recovery was entirely dependent because of who they belonged to. They already belonged. And then in the last parable, he talks about these two sons who misunderstand the father. The one thinking that, that the father's love uh, for them was based on the good or bad actions. The one son who says, um, I, I don't think the father will take me back. And the son says, welcome home. You've always been my son. The one son who said, I did everything right and you didn't give me extra. I should be getting more. And the father says, you've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. And then we see at the end, in each of these parables, there's this rejoicing over that which has been found, and then it says there will be more rejoicing over one sinner who repents. Okay, let's think about these words again, to repent. The word in Hebrew is the word teshuva, which means to come home, which means to return. The word in the Greek text is metanoeo, meta meaning change, noia, noeo, meaning thinking. To repent is an invitation to come home it's an invitation to change your way of thinking. So the religious elite, to the religious elite who think that they're earning something by maintaining and meeting the purity laws and standards, and to the sinners who are seen as part of the problem, whose actions are of thought to, to separated them from the will of God, Jesus says to all of them, you need to change the way you think about this. You need to change the way you think about yourself. You've misunderstood how all of this works. Both of you are playing the earning and ranking and proving and worth game. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Change your thinking about this. You are not earning or losing your belonging. You already belong. And it's not because you were good, like the religious guys are bad, like the guys who couldn't perform the rituals, the purity laws. It's because you're all sons and daughters. You've been sons and daughters the whole time. This is the fundamental starting point of your existence. You belong. So today, we're going to gather around the table, metaphorically. We're going to go into our time of communion. We're going to pass the juice and the bread that represents the body and the blood of Jesus. And the table, think about what the table means to us. In, in, a, in, a, in a hierarchy where who you ate with mattered and where rabbis shouldn't be eating with the lowly sinners, Jesus invites us to his table. He invites us to come share a meal, a place where nothing is earned or subtracted from our existence, but rather a place, uh, a place where there is no hierarchy a place where we are all equal because we all belong to him. And we participate in this meal. We take the bread and the juice that remind us of the body and the blood of Jesus and it reminds us that our belonging has nothing to do with what we've done. It's entirely because of him, that God so loved the world that he sent his son to rescue, redeem. So I want us to take this moment, remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and think about maybe which character are you listening to this story? Who, who do you side with maybe more? Do you find yourself more along the lines of the religious people going, well, we've been doing the right things the whole time. Do you find yourself as the older brother? 
well, I've done the right thing for a really long time and I've been doing this and so I should get more. Well, to you, Jesus says, repent. Change your thinking. You've misunderstood the Father. Or maybe you find yourself more with like the tax collectors and sinners who are gathering around Jesus hoping to hear something good. Maybe you find yourself being the younger brother and you feel like your bad deeds have taken away the love of the Father from you. Jesus tells this story and he says, repent. Change your way of thinking about this. The bad deed that you think you done have done isn't separating you from the love of the Father. So where are you at? Think through this. Think through this. And then maybe, maybe for you today, this communion time is really like, do we all need to repent here? Have we all misunderstood this? Have we for some reason think, like grown to the place of thinking that what we do changes the love of the Father for us? You know, I think about even my own life. I've done a lot of stupid stuff. And the funniest thing to me is that my dad still loves me. He, he still loves, like, he, he hugged me this morning. And I've been a mess. I've done a lot of stupid things in my life. But the thing that I've never questioned is do I belong? I've always known that. I've always known that. The invitation is to repent, to change your way of thinking, to return, to come home, to the understanding that you already belong. So we're gonna pray. We have communion people around today. What we're gonna do, it was gonna ask that you get up and go to the stations, okay? They're not coming to you today. You're going to them. If you are unable to get up or unwilling to get up, that's okay. Just simply raise your hand, stay in your seat, and someone will come to you, okay? So again, you don't have to rush today. Take your time, think, pray. If you wanna get communion first, that's fine. If you wanna get it after, think through. Where are you at? What do you need to repent what way of thinking do, does it need to change today? We're gonna pray and give you some space. Dear Lord, we're so very grateful for this time, for this moment. God, we thank you for these incredible stories. We thank you that people have been studying these for thousands and thousands of years and there's like new insight all the time. God, we thank you that this book is alive and active and speaks to us that it's continually calling to us, crying out to us, to, to us, begging us to see things a little bit different. God, we thank you for the message of belonging. We thank you that you sent your son. We thank you that through him, we have freedom and forgiveness, eternal life. God, we're grateful that we get to come to the table a place where we are equal, a place where we are brothers and sisters in your name, a place where there is no hierarchy, where there is no ranking. God, we thank you for this moment to, to sit, to eat, to commune. God, we thank you for sending your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey everybody, it's Hank one more time. 
Thanks again for tuning in and listening to this awesome series that we've been in, Uncommon. Our hope and our prayer is that you can listen to these messages and take away from them uh, a new perspective on the truths and the ideas and the concepts that we talked about so that you can live your life in a little bit of a different way than you did before. We really are glad to have so many of you who participate and engage with us in our online platforms and through our online messages. Again, if you want to learn more about us and who we are as a church, and you want to learn more about what it means to reclaim God's intended reality for your life and creating a better you and a better world, head to our website. That's www.thefoundry.org. Again, that's www.thefoundry.org. Look for our awesome Facebook group as well, which is a great place to connect with people who are part of our church, both here in Central Florida and abroad. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.